This is the Bristol Cable. This is the live recording of our speaker series, where we speak to prominent writers, academics and activists from across the UK, putting the Cable's work in the national conversation. We launched the series with Moya Lothian-McLean, contributing editor of Navarra Media and a presenter of the Human Resources podcast. A regular on TV and radio, Moya writes about politics, society and culture for publications including Galden, The New York Times, The Guardian and The Eye. I'm Priyanka Raval, a reporter for the Bristol Cable. Here, I sit down with Moya to discuss the future of campaign journalism. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Moya, in what seems to be an absolutely bursting to the seams schedule. <laughs> My say. days have got very busy, yeah, but I'm very happy to be in it Bristol. Seems like it. Thank you for this whistle stop tour. I know, it's sad. I wish I could stay longer, but I, uh, unfortunately, immediately got to get back to London. Oh Worst city in the world. Unlike Bristol, which is the best city in the world. Oh, I don't know if you know. No, that's Leeds, but we'll, we'll add on. <laughs> that's a debate for later. Okay. I want to, okay, so for me, maybe we should start with, for people who haven't followed your career as closely as I may have had, how did you get into the world of journalism how and in particular the world of journalism that we occupy? Uh, I started working in journalism when I was at university. So I began my foray into being paid for writing things um, with a music blog. I started in music journalism and I was desperate to work for Vice because Vice were the coolest thing around when I was they growing They were the up. cool kids of the class. Yeah, and they? when you come from rural Herefordshire, which is, I hope some of you know where that is, but it's near Wales if not. My friend from Bristol's always like, Hertfordshire? No. Um, when you come from a place like that, then Vice is like your access to something very cool. Anyway, so I started writing a blog that just basically duped the tone of Vice and someone from Vice saw it and funny enough, they were like, hmm, she's very good at aping our existing copy. Would you like to freelance for us? So I, I managed to start working freelancing for them when I was at university, kept doing that. When I left university, thought I'd go into advertising. I didn't have any aspirations to go into journalism. I didn't do a journalism degree or anything like that. Uh, but I applied on a whim for a job at a lifestyle magazine. So we've gone from music to lifestyle journalism. Uh, and I got the job as an editorial assistant. So for three years, I worked on a print magazine that is given out on commuter trains. Uh, in, in, I think, major cities, but London's its main base, called Stylist. So it was sort of women's lifestyle aimed at the ABC1 uh, demographic. And if you don't know what that is, that is basically affluent people living in urban areas. So you can imagine the kind of content we were doing. It was very sort of like 2015 feminism, which I was all about at the time. Uh, and then from there, I worked at the BBC for three months, which was the worst experience of my life. <laughs> And then sort of went freelance and worked various shifts in newsrooms about until I was picked up by Galdem, who said, can you come in and cover our politics editor role? Which I did, did that, eventually got headhunted, went there full time, then got headhunted by Navara. And now I am at Navara and I plan to stay at Navara for as long as I'll have me. Amazing. And I, d I don't think we can skip over the fact that you said the BBC was the worst experience of your life. Do you want to tell us why? Um, some people may have heard me talk about this before. The BBC was the only place where I experienced what I would call overt racism. 
uh, <laughs> directed at me and people around me, overt bullying as well. Um, I'm someone who's been allowed into a lot of spaces in journalism that I don't think uh, other people of colour may have. I'm, you know, mixed race. I have a classic RP accent, which is getting worse. Um, I grew up, grew up middle class. Like, I was always allowed in these spaces. I'm, I say I'm brown enough to fit sort of any criteria they may have, any quotas they may have, but I'm not brown enough to scare anyone. So I was allowed to the BBC, and the BBC has a really chronic problem of having young talent, often talent from marginalised backgrounds, I would say, uh, and then just keeping them at junior level, just squashing them, because there's this upper level of middle managers, and this is not everyone at the BBC. I know some amazing people. It's a really massive operation, right? Um, but there's a level of middle managers who've managed to get there because they can sit through the bullshit that the BBC throws at you, stay when other people leave, and they are intent on making sure nothing changes. Nothing at all. Uh, and they are some of the worst journalists I've come across. Uh, and they just get promoted upwards. I've watched one particular person who I worked with just be promoted up and up and up, and everywhere they go, then there's a wake of chaos and allegations of bullying that follow them, and they're all hushed up. Every single company. Uh, so, yeah, the BBC was just uh, three months of... There was no raison d'etre for why we were doing the things we were doing there. I thought at the BBC we'd be doing, you know, real journalism. But the BBC at this point, the, the place I worked for, which was the BBC Three's uh, written editorial side, was in sort of chaos. It didn't really know what it was doing or what it was for. So they kept chasing clicks the way you would if you were funded by advertiser money and funded by clicks in the first place, which is how I found myself at 8 a, on 8am shifts writing stories about ducks and wheelchairs. Why? <laughs> Why are you having me write up press association copy or scraped copy from news aggregate sites when you are the... F Sorry, how can I, much can I swear on this? Oh, <laughs> when you're the fucking BBC. Have some shame. And it was, it was just a useful, it was really useful for me because it taught me that, you know, the B, as I said, the BBC really still does some good stuff. I'm not somebody who thinks it should be scrapped altogether. I think it's, it's got its own issues. But it taught me that that was not an environment that I could thrive with and it was not a forward-thinking environment, at least not the place I was in. So I did not stay uh, or try and extend my contract any further. I mean, in terms of what is not campaign journalism, it's ducks in wheelchairs, isn't it? <laughs> Doug, we weren't campaigning for anything. It was literally, you know, the kind of copy ripped off these viral news sites, which I have further experience of down the line. Mm. Galden must have been a real breath of fresh air then. Galden was the first place, I think, that really just kind of believed in me and my ideas mm. and let me go and do it. And Galden had its faults, don't get me wrong. I'm sure we're going to... Sorry, people know who Galden are. Okay. Yeah. okay, so Galdem was a magazine that was actually founded in Bristol, I think in 2015, by Liv Little. And she was attending Bristol University and she said, okay, we want to make a zine at first, which is specifically, at first it was for women of colour. Then it expanded, it got a load of funding, investment, became a fully-fledged magazine. And it was uh, mainly reporting on stories from marginalised populations. And the tagline, I think, became, uh, we're reporting on the stories that uh, really affect people of colour from marginalised genders. But this also expanded. I, the way that I approached Gowden in the politics role was I wanted to look at stories that would particularly um, impact those demographics, but ones that also everyone could look at and be like, okay, hang on, that also happens to me, but this is, these are the people at the sharp end of this story. So, you know, we covered things like Stop Sim, which was a mental health initiative 
where police officers were involved in responding to mental health crises. Uh, we covered things like uh, the rising transphobia in the domestic violence sector and how that was impacting both workers and service users. Those kind of stories, you know, things that go beyond any sort of identity category, but will particularly come from the perspective of people who were particularly affected, who the canaries in the coal mine, as it were. And is there a kind of unifying principle that runs through your career in journalism? <laughs> what were you... Have you always been someone who is... I mean, you're working at Navarra now, so I'm, I'm assuming that you're interested in some kind of public interest, journalism with integrity. Has that always been your guiding principle? It's a really interesting question because I still think I'm working out where I sit in journalism. I've always wanted to do things. I've always been very, I've always had a very strong moral compass. And that doesn't mean it's a correct moral compass. It's just strong. Uh, <laughs> righteous. It's, right, it's righteous according to my values. That does not mean I'm correct all of the time or I don't get things wrong. Oh, <laughs> that that resonates. Uh, I, I, do you know what? I grew up in a family that was basically matriarchal. I was raised by a single mother, but we were surrounded by aunts. Just like I was raised here, there was a field, there was another aunt, there was a field and another aunt, and they all had loads of children. So I was basically raised by a village in rural England. And what that village taught me was that people have differences, political differences, but this real strong sense of love and compassion, that if you fall down, they will pick you up. And this idea of fairness and equity. And I think throughout my career, what I've really been pushing for is trying to make sure that people have the same opportunities that I had to be heard in the first place. Um, but also this idea of fairness, like surely as a journalist, we should be pushing to report this balanced, accurate coverage that tries to make society a little bit fairer. And lots of people don't share that view. That's fine. That's why that I'm a journalist with an agenda and other people have different agendas. Um, but I think that's probably the unifying theme. And it isn't always upheld. You know, I wrote about ducks with wheelchairs. I did lots of viral news aggregation. But underneath that, I would try and seed in stories, you know, when I was working at the um, the what was it, the Indy 100, which was just literally viral news stories. That was the whole day. Uh, from 8 a.m. to 4 a.m., you were just kind of aggregating news. But I always would pitch things. And they let me write on my free time, not getting paid anything extra. Stories, you know, in the pandemic, I, I covered a report, an actual like, full reporting on um, the lack of Wi-Fi in care homes and how that was impacting people whose ability to talk to their families when you know, we had that terrible thing in the pandemic. So many people were trapped in care homes. But it turned out no care homes had the infrastructure, digital infrastructure, so people couldn't communicate and they hadn't thought about that. So stories like that or, you know, the, the, the fear of attending BLM protests when you are a person of colour who's in a demographic that is, was particularly impacted by COVID. So I was trying to do these stories at the same time as I was trying to also pay my rent. I mean, that is exactly the crux of the problem, right? Why does it have to be a choice between... Do I do journalism with integrity or do I pay my rent? Well, it's not just a choice in journalism, is it? This is, this is literally every job across the board in Britain because, you know, our welfare system has been cut to the bone. Way, real-time wages have fallen by X of thousand, I think it's £15,000 a year. Um, they've fallen since about 2010. Um, and, it, you know, you're choosing between having the space to create, like long-form journalism. I mean, there's so much to cover Long-form journalism, which tends to be the journalism where you're doing really hard-hitting stuff or going out into a patch, doing all that. The entire industry of journalism as it used to exist, which wasn't perfect, I'd love to get on to, uh, 
has collapsed. The, the, the way that you see journalism, the way you would have someone somewhere in a local area who would know that community really well, like you do with the Bristol Cable, and you build up these sources, you build up a knowledge of the area in. That doesn't exist in the same way. The biggest regional publisher, for example, is Reach PLC, who basically just get news aggregation on every single site. Like you, you'll see... We throw darts at them in the cable. Good. <laughs> Good. The shit they make people write. Um, and that will, and that's, you know, for one region, they'll have like, I don't know, five titles, but it's not really five titles. It's one title that's publishing one story that is then republished across the very horribly upheld uh, website. So maybe this brings us nicely onto the topic of campaign journalism, of the title of the talk. And what's interesting is both the Bristol Cable and Navarra Media have people-powered media in their messaging. Evidently, both of our newsrooms, which interestingly, so I think Navarra started up, what, 2011, started to professionalize around 2014? No, started to professionalize around 2019. Oh, okay, all right, fine. <laughs> okay, something happened in 2014 around that. I remember reading about it and thinking, okay, so the cable started in 2014 as well. So in a way, we've had kind of parallel journeys into establishing this kind of new model of media. So the whole ethos behind the cable, which I think is very similar to Navarra's, is that you want to have a business model in journalism that for once, instead of undermining the reporting you're able to do, actually supports it. And the only way to do that is to be free of billionaire corporate oligarchs and to be genuinely people-powered, right? That's why it's so central to the messaging of both Navarra and the cable. I would say these models actually aren't new. So people-powered media, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, radical newspapers were the biggest forms of media in the country, essentially. Um, there was the stamp duty, which was aimed to stamp out the kind of radical presses, but it didn't work. They went underground. That was They were all people-powered media. They, people, you know, workers would pool their money together. One copy of... Um, newspapers like the Northern Star, which was a militant newspaper, was read was estimated to read about 20 times. Like, so one copy would pass around 20 different people. Um, so this idea of people-powered media, it existed before. What people's, the narrative of media in this country is the idea that advertising uh, really opened it up. They say advertising created a, you know, this free market. Advertising allowed people to subsidize media bollocks it's actually bollocks you everyone needs to read this book which is fantastic it's called light how, bedtime reading light bedtime reading yeah how without responsibility press broadcasting and the internet in britain it's by james Curran and gene seaton the history of media and if you want to understand media read that and flat earth news um so anyway so this idea of people are media I'm, I'm actually going to use an example here of what advertising and did to media in the company and there was a newspaper in, created, I think, in 1914 called the Daily Herald. And this was a left-wing newspaper. It was, it barely scraped kind of by, but it managed to get, you know, it managed to get some traction. Uh, and then in 1922, it was taken over by the Trades Union Congress. It became the official organ of the Trades Union Congress. It became the official organ of the Labour Party at that time, which was, you know, actually cared about the unions. Uh, <laughs> 
And, but the problem was, in the 1960s, so it, it had issues with advertising anyway, because advertisers didn't want, even though it had really good circulation, advertisers didn't want to put their money to papers that were mostly going to working class populations because they said, oh, we're not going to get bang for our buck here. This is not the affluent readership. Uh, in the 1960s, after a load of, you know, just making, getting by, even though the circulation of the Daily Herald was 8% national circulation, which is pretty good, pretty good for a pretty radical left-wing newspaper. Um, it only had 3.5% of the advertising share in the country. So advertisers were like, we'd actually rather advertise with papers with a lower circulation, but that are reaching these urban ABC1 affluent young professionals. So the TUC was persuaded to give up this paper. They changed the name. It was relaunched in, I think, 1967, and what it was trying to do under this new name was it was trying to relaunch to these, this, this, this demographic they'd identified, these young affluent readers who were, you know, they, they were kind of a bit more consumerist and they still had left-wing views, but they were actually more about consumerists. They didn't give a shit. They didn't read it. Uh, and the Herald's old readers, these, this older left-wing economic who were kind of, I would say, a bit more socially conservative, didn't want to read it either. So the Herald, under its new name, was then sold in 1969. And its new name was The Sun, and it was sold to Rupert Murdoch for £800,000. So that's how a left-wing paper... Can we get a boo from the audience, please? <laughs> that's how a left-wing paper goes from being this sort of radical... First of all, it was a radical free, free paper. Then it was a radical paper under the Trades Union Congress, an official, an official left-wing paper. Then trying to relaunch it to this new demographic, absolute tanks, can't get the advertisers anyway, sold to Rupert Murdoch, and that is how The Sun was born. That is fascinating. And that is precisely, I guess, why we go for the importance of people-powered media. Because as soon as it becomes owned by people like Rupert Murdoch, you know, that, that really destroys the editorial capacity to hold power to account anymore, right? Well, of course, but it's, it's more than just Murdoch. The thing that pushed it towards Murdoch was the advertisers in the first place. This idea that advertising was at this free, the free market, essentially. The idea that, okay, advertisers will fairly distribute the money, which was, and they needed that money. Papers needed that money to run because publishing costs had gone up, but there was no sort of subsidies. They didn't have like the extra cash to cover it. So advertisers became this unofficial external subsidy. And they're like, well, if you're good enough, you can compete in the free market. But it's not a fucking free market. Uh, so there was, the competition was rigged from the start. Well, indeed. <laughs> okay, shall we get on to maybe a definition instead of what you th what do you think campaign journalism is? I've been puzzling over this. What is campaign journalism? Because... Newspapers run campaigns, you know, you had the Guardian doing Panama Papers, you have right-wing papers doing lots of campaigns a lot of the time. The Sun probably does a lot of campaign journalism, it has done a lot of campaign journalism, but has it been for the good of the country? There's regular sort of campaigns that are whipped up. I think what we're talking about is journalism that's often called advocacy journalism, um, where which tends to be more, I think, even though that can also be a concept that is used by right-leaning papers. I would say the Bristol is definitely a left, Bristol Cable's left-leaning paper, right? Um, that is, I'd say advocacy tends to have the connotations of more of a positive campaign. Mm. Um, and it's interesting we're talking about this because I would say the Bristol Cable as well is very much a advocacy, ad advocacy journalistic platform. 
Navarra, I don't know if it is in the same way because you guys run sustained campaigns. Um, there's the one the debt collectors. There was one on the- boot out bailiffs. Did yeah. you see our rap video? Yeah, fantastic. Boot, there was hashtag boot out bailiffs. I think there's one on council transparency with housing planning and that you know and you got, had clear aims all those campaigns and those aims were achieved. Uh, Navarra doesn't quite do that in the same way. Navarra tends to be. I don't think we would think of ourselves as campaign journalists. And I think that's also something that is becoming more of an internal discussion. Not that I can reveal loads about that. Um, but more of a thing, we're trying to think of like, what is Navarra? When it started in 2011, it, started, it was born out of the student movement. Um, it was a very sort of intellectual operation. You had James Butler and Aaron Bastani doing lots of philosophy theorizing on a microphone for an late, hour and a half. Late night Marxism school. Late oh, night Marxism yeah. school. And yeah. now it's, you know, we're really focusing on our original reporting, but we haven't yet done a thing that I would say is a sustained campaign with a specific aim. It's more like we're going to do lots of little reporting on stories that, uh, I don't know, that advocate for, pe- for people that we don't think usually get advocated for or provide an alternative perspective to the narratives of the mainstream media. Interesting, because, I mean, I'm guessing everyone here knows Navarra Media. It's fine if you don't. I won't be offended. <laughs> or are you like, who the hell is Moya? Why are we here? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Should I explain what Navarra is? Go on, give, okay, give Navarra quick... is just an independent news platform uh, that exists in the same universe of alternative media as the Bristol Cable. I would say possibly the Manchester Mill, Declassified UK. There's a whole... I mean, Paul Mason, if anyone knows who that is, uh, did a little <laughs> a little mind map, which many of us are on, so you can always go check that out. Check out Mason's Don't mind Don't do it. Um... Okay, it's interesting because my perception, and I don't know if other people share this, is that actually Navarra is the epitome of campaign journalism because you, in contrast to the cable, are explicitly left-wing. While that may be detected in some of our coverage, (laughs) we could possibly say that that is, you know, we, we don't, that is not part of our messaging. Our messaging is very much public interest journalism. It's holding local democracy to account, and it's also a big part of making the case for local journalism. But but Navarra are always you are the left. I would say the separation there for me again, campaign journalism. I think there has to be a campaign at the heart of it. So you, and as we've said, you don't have to be left wing to do campaign journalism. I would say Navarra is a collection of journalists. Some of us reformed or reforming activists. I've never defined myself as an activist, um, but others I think have had that experience. Um, who are, have an agenda. We're journalists with an agenda, a specific political agenda. We make no bones about the fact that we are not objective. We have clear bias in our political views, but we try and report the news that we see around us through that lens and use all the facts. Like we try and look outside the window and see if it is raining rather than checking the Met Office app, as I did today and arrived in Bristol without a coat. <laughs> Or an umbrella. So maybe I'm actually not doing that good a job of looking out the window. Some campaign weather reporting. I'm campaigning for the meteor. <laughs> the Met Office app has been tonk since the pandemic because all the, pla- the, the planes stopped running that they got all the data from and they've never recovered. And I need answers. This should be your next campaign. <laughs> the cable holds Met Office to account. <laughs> Please. Lots of sorry looking pictures of us looking like drowned rats. Yeah, yeah. We'll- We'll bang that. 
Um, so what we do at The Cable, obviously, is we are, at the moment, 60% grant funded, 35% member funded, and 5% um, advertising funded. The advertisers have to adhere to a very strict ethical advertising charter, and also our funders have to check out as well. So this is our way of ma making sure that our funding structure does not at all compromise our editorial integrity. And this, I think, is really essential to ensure that we do good quality campaign journalism. What is the structure like at Navarra? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, okay, so I have the stats in front of me. We are also currently running a campaign to, by the end of the year, we want 5,000 more subscribers. We already have 1,000 signed up in a week. Maybe it's two weeks. Um, so if you want to become a paying supporter of Navarra Media from just £1 a month, please do. I can now tell Steffi, our fundraising person, that I put that in. Uh, so subscribers, 89% funded by subscribers. This is from 2022. 89? 89% funded by subscribers. Uh, I think before we ran this campaign, we had 10,000 paying subscribers or supporters, as we call them. 7% uh, of our funding comes from... This is all on our website, by the way. We recently released a little pie chart which shows how we're funded, so you can see it for transparency. 7% of our funding comes from YouTube advertisements. Uh, I think 3.29% comes from our merch. I'm hoping to increase that once we start doing crop tops. Uh, <laughs> and then the rest of it, I think, comes from grants. But we're trying to rely less and less on grants because historically our grants have been... I can't say every person we've had grants from because I haven't been there long enough to know this. I know that our Labour correspondent role, which we hired in 2019 after I joined, was funded initially by Rosa Luxemburg's foundation. But the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, and this is the problem with relying on grants, is really linked to the fortunes of Die Linke, aka the left, which is Germany's left-wing political party. If you follow German politics at all, you'll know the fortunes of Die Linke have not been good. <laughs> um, and therefore the funding on offer from Rosa Luxemburg are not that good. So relying on grants, the problem is that there's those sea changes. You are literally relying on a philanthropic model there. And philanthropy, as well-meaning as it is, is not something that can be depended on. It's something that changes with the political situation. It changes with, I don't know, when your funder runs out of money or decides, actually, I'm not going to... There was a recently the news story about um, Just Stop Oil. I think it was Dale Vance who says, actually, I've decided that Just Stop Oil, we're not going to stop oil via this, so I'm going to rechannel all the funding that I've put into Just Stop Oil and something else. Now, I'm not here to debate whether that's a good decision or not or the strategy of the ecological movement, but it shows that that funding that you might have planned to use, there's no longevity to that and it can disappear in a moment. So that's one of the reasons we're running, you know, we're trying to run this campaign, but it might well be that for the rest of Navarra's existence, unless one of us goes against all political principles and becomes a billionaire, I uh, don't know who that would be, you guys can guess, um, then we might have to do a fundraising campaign every single year. That might just be something we have to do until we've reached this equilibrium. Yeah. So just want to mention we're also doing a membership campaign <laughs> um, as well as Navarra. Um, but we are, and I don't know if you've seen uh, the billboards, but we are also on a very like targeted membership drive at the moment because we really do need to, I mean, ideally we want at least that number to flip. So instead of being 60% grant funded, 35% member, 35 members, it would be great if that was reversed. You know, that that is what makes us financially sustainable in the in this climate right one of the things I've, I've been trying to think about 
in terms of Navara, in terms of these funding models, is the psychology behind why someone would want to sign up to paying for news. Because 65, there was a recent study which showed 65% of people in the UK said they wouldn't want to pay for news. And this is an issue because all, all knowledge, I mean, it's not just an issue because I want to keep my job, but it's an, it's an issue because the rise of the internet, and I don't mean this in a Luddite way, has basically made the value of knowledge zero because you can get everything on the internet, right, for free. And why the hell, if you can get everything for free, would you pay for anything? But no, I've, I've recently started being like, realizing that I haven't got enough subscriptions to news and I need to start putting my money where my mouth is. And I'm thinking about what's, what was behind the sea change in that. And it's also because as a person, I want to invest. It's not just sustainable on the side of the company. It's sustainable for people to invest in themselves. Like I want a long-term newspaper that I can feel a bit attached to. I want a long-term news project that I can feel like I have a relationship with, that I believe in. And that's how you get people on board. You have to create that personal connection with them and say, we're not just going to disappear. We're not going to, you know end up like your other news places, like the Vices, like the BuzzFeeds, uh, I don't know, like the Gaudens, RIP. Um, and we're not just going to disappear overnight. Why? Because as long as you back us, that means we stay in business. We are not dependent on this external funding that comes from investors who might want to see returns on their investment that we can't give them because news doesn't make a profit in that way. Or we're not, you know, we're not just getting this rounds of seed funding that will eventually run out, even if people don't want it back then eventually you run out of people to fund when they're like, well, where's this going? Where are you doing with this? And you're like, well, forever. We just want to do seed funding. Well, exactly. News isn't going to make a profit unless you do that kind of shit, clickbait, journalism, you know, gutter journalism. That, I that doesn't make a profit, that. though. That's what I want to add. That doesn't make a profit. So uh, talking, actually, let's use the independent as an example of this because we were talking about it a bit before. So the independent was the last national newspaper to be launched. It was 1986. I wasn't even born, sadly. Uh, 1986. And the Independent eventually was bought. So it was independent. It was meant to be launched as a sort of neutral, almost objective source of news at a time when people felt news was getting ever, you know, this is an ongoing thing. News is ever more shifting to the right. It's always, it's always been shifting to the right. We live in Britain. Um, and yeah, so it was but in 2010, uh, post-financial crash, it was bought by the billionaire Gene Lebedev. I don't know if I, I never say his name correctly. Apologies to him, but I don't think he'll care. He's too rich. Bought by him. Uh, and then at some point it sold to DMG, but I think before that it went, it, they ceased print operations. So in 2016, it, this print newspaper, the last newspaper that was started, went, out, went bust. It's no longer a print newspaper. And now it's part of the Daily Mail group and exists only in a form that I think I described to you as when you try and read the independent online, it's like being repeatedly hit by a sack of bricks. It's a horrible experience, right? That's advertising, but I've worked there. I've worked on their little viral bits. I've worked on shifts on there. And I know that, that those advertisers, they're not making that much money from that. It doesn't get them anywhere near the money that they would need to sustain it. They are backed up by DMG. That is where the money comes from advertising share has completely dropped off as well for these newspapers, for these sites, um, in the form it used to in terms of like, you know, clicks and clicks on ads and clicks on stories with ads by them. Um, because you have the two biggest publishers in the world, Facebook and Google, well, I don't know if Google's technical publisher, two biggest advertising platforms in the world who really take the mark, the lion's share of advertising profits. And, you know, that's what you're seeing instead is a lot of news companies have content arms. Galdem had this. 
The Guardian has this. The NYT has this. You might not notice it when you're reading it, but you need to look for the little, there's a sign at the stop, which says like Guardian Labs. That means it's branded content. It doesn't mean that it's a standalone news story. Um, and this is, you know, news that has been sponsored or paid for by a big company. And one of the things I think Guardian Labs does quite a lot, I think Declassified, Matt Kennard on Declassified UK was talking about this, is they do a lot of, you know, investigations into things like dark money. But they steer clear of any of the investigations that might impact the Guardian, people paying for the Guardian's lab. So it looks like they're doing real journalism. But and It's you know, a pretense. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of this pretense. It's this, this simulation of real investigative journalism. And it, it's, being, it's, it's all there to sell, you know, to advertisers. It's all there to make advertisers a profit. And they're like, don't worry, we're still upholding the news. And it's like, well, if we actually put the sentence in, you would cancel the whole piece. So, it's, so you're not upholding the news at all. You're just creating another short-term way to kind of keep this bit profitable that's still relying on advertising, but in a completely different form than just the old-fashioned, oh, there's a banner headline up here from, I don't know, Curry's PLC. This speaker series is part of The Cable's new Beyond the Bullshit campaign, our biggest membership drive yet. It's so clear that people are tired of corporate news that thrives on profit, sensationalism, has no integrity. We need members to keep proper journalism alive and show that people-powered media can work. So sign up to be a member today for as little as a pound a month at thebristolcable.org forward slash join. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about in particular is, for those of you who didn't see, Moya was involved in one of the most awful bait and switches I have ever seen. You were told that you would go on Sky News to talk about misogyny in the media, right? Because of the comments that Lawrence Fox had made about politics, Joe's correspondent, Ava Evans. Which I don't even want to repeat. Look it up. Ridiculous thing to say. And right before you were due to go on, they switch up the topic. They say it's not a discussion, it's a debate. And you'll be talking about free speech. It was literally while I was on the Zoom. While <laughs> Sitting on the Zoom on and they Zoom. went, oh yeah, we're doing free. And it came up with, oh, it's about, it's about free speech. Free speech debate. And I went onto the gallery and said, free speech debate? <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you told me. I said, I was told it was a discussion about misogyny. Because after years and years and years of, you know, realizing, I realized I had some sort of like record that I'd lodged my disgust, my annoyance of this. And so, so I was like, okay, you're a journalist, like switch into journalism mode. Finally, it's taken, I don't know, 10 years. It was outrageous though, because you were brought on to talk about this topic that you were not at all anticipating talking about, totally thrown into the lion's den. It's interesting. There has been a really big response to that clip. And on one hand, uh, so basically clipped up a bit of this, me realizing on air that the person I was talking to, as who he, he was a 23-year-old. Um, Chris, Chris, God. Connor Tomlinson. Godspeed. 20, but 23, like... Take a long, hard look in the mirror, Connor. I know, I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not 30, but I'm also not 23, and I think that's important to state. Uh, so he's a 20, he's a 23 year old who'd been brought on from GB News. He works as a streamer. He works in, you know, the space that they call the manosphere. And I could have a thousand things to say about young men like Connor Tomlinson, who I think um, a lot of right wing, young right wing voices are picked up and used as totems uh, before they've even like solidified their views. 
the things I used to think at 23, things I still think at 28, like in 10 years, I'm sure I've changed lots of my views. I was so certain that at 23, I knew everything about everything and had it all figured out. And it's like, well, that was horseshit. Um, anyway, so Gorimon, he's arguing that misogyny doesn't really exist as a structural force. Uh, I'm just like, this is, well, this is fucking tiring. Why am I being put on to t- argue with a 23-year-old about misogyny existing? And he's like, and then he says... And while you're saying that it's tiring, he says, oh, I'm so sorry. It must be so hard for you to come on and do a paid interview. Not you memorizing it. <laughs> a paid interview? I was like, I'm not being paid. Are you? No, no. I, I, so it didn't happen immediately. And I was like, wait a minute, are you getting paid for this? And at first I thought it was a jo- I was joking. I was like, ha he's being paid. And then suddenly I went, wait, wait, wait. Wait, after the interview, I was like, wait, the person who came on to talk about why misogyny wasn't real was being paid. And the woman who was there to talk about structural misogyny wasn't being paid. 250 pounds, no, no less. Two, not 250. So I went back and I said, I, so I went back and I said, hey, it's, so this, a lot of places have been reporting um, got this wrong and were like, oh, you know, she was offered this fee and she didn't take it. No, that's not what fucking happened. I went back after and I emailed the producer and I said, hey, just to check, was Connor being paid for this? And they came back and they said, yes, Connor was offered a £75 fee uh, and we will, we, we will give you that. Sorry about that. Then a different producer gets in touch in the morning and says, oh, sorry, we just assume because you're a Sky News contributor that you'd get it automatically. Um, we'll pay that now because obviously they've seen it kicking off a bit. And I said, no, that's bullshit. Like, I haven't worked with your team before. Every time you work for Sky, you have to invoice as well. How would I invoice if I didn't know I was being paid? Uh, and they phoned me up and they said, we're so sorry. And by the way, we were actually paying Connor 200 pounds. So, so, and I still haven't received my 200 pounds, but I am donating it as soon as I get it to a charity which deals with um, patriarchal masculinity. Beyond equality. Uh, a round of applause, please. No, don't applaud me. Don't applaud me. I genuinely, this is the thing everyone's like, wow, amazing. You stood up against misogyny. It's like, no, it's just fucking common sense. Like, it's just fucking common sense to say, I'm not, they were like, wow, it's so good of you to, you know, jeopardize your position at Sky. Jeopardize my position at Sky. Sky were jazzed. They got so many clicks on that shit. (laughs) They were like, please come back for the press review, please. And I did because I think it's important to go on legacy media at times and talk about this stuff. That's also a problem when you're working in alternative media. It's like, okay, we're working in our little niche, but you have to think about, am I going to go on this news channel? And we have debates about St. Navarro. Should we go on GB News? Should we go on this channel? Where's the line we draw in the sand? We still haven't figured it out. I mean, yeah, I think the reason why the applause is merited because you did a stunning performance in really, really hostile circumstances, I think. He's 23, like... (laughs) But I think in a way, this really, really epitomizes exactly what's wrong with mainstream media and exactly why we're working in, say, campaign journalism as a shorthand for the alternative, right? Because, I mean, this guy also, he said something about Ava Evans, which was completely untrue. You were making the very valid point that it's not about, it's not really a discussion of free speech that Lawrence Fox and, you know, the other idiots at GB News are allowed to say this. It's the fact that they are able to bypass broadcast but they were held you know, broadcasting rules. rules. They had the free speech. That's why they said it. It was exactly. free. Um, they just then fell foul of Ofcom. If they'd been streaming, they wouldn't have had the... You know, Navara is a streaming service and we're very, we're very biased. We would 
fall afoul of all impartiality rules every single week if we put Navarro Live out in his current form because we technically do not have balance in the form of a right-wing voice on Navarro Live regularly. And that would be something we'd have to think about. Um, so with these people, I think what it really showed to me was if you're working in alternative media, you are striving to be 10 times better than lots of these mainstream discussions. You're striving to try and build something more with more integrity, but also just better quality. And this isn't true across the board. And this is something we spoke about campaign journalism. And this is also why I'm sometimes a bit loath to use that example, because I, I know outlets that describe themselves as campaign journalists. And there's this association almost of like amateur hour, which I don't like, and I don't think is fair always. But it's this, you know, even at Gaudem, we didn't have the resources to professionalize in the same way that say another outlet would. And there's structural things there about, you know, who's working there? How did they get into media? Where does this come from? It's a grassroots project. But also, I do think that you have to make a decision at some point, and this is one I think I've only just recently managed to make, about whether you're an activist or a journalist. And that's a hard decision to make, you know, because you want to be out there fighting everything. And uh, unfortunately, I think actually I'd probably do better in this world if I just stick to being a journalist. But isn't that the really kind of almost gaslighting thing about being the ju a journalist these days is that if you are explicitly left-wing as Navarra is then you are like you're a very partisan journalist you're explicitly less left-wing as you said we're journalists with an agenda and then it's kind of assumed that everyone else who is not that is then without an agenda and as we know that's just absolutely not true well, yeah, of course. I mean, and that's what makes it so much harder to call out and course, compete against as well. Do you know, when we, when we got a, got a write-up of the, the Sky Misogyny News incident in the Telegraph, and everyone at Navarra was gassed for one reason, it's because it didn't say left-wing media organisation, Navarra Media, it just said Navarra Media. And we were like, yes! <laughs> Finally, we've made it. Uh, although Douglas Murray the other day did call us all genocidalists, so the libel is back on. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously a thing, like, if you have a left-wing agenda in this country, you're seen as so uh, non-objective, or the, the ability to report fairly and accurately, you don't, you don't have uh, that attributed to you. Whereas if you're Andrew Neil and, you know, the chairman of The Spectator, then it's like, wow, but he, he really is able to be objective in his interview. And it's like, any good journalist can do that. It's just, I would say, a lot of mainstream media is not filled with good journalists. The quality has gone down because... The pay has gone down, the conditions have gone down, uh, that you work in, uh, you don't get trained in the same way. So it's not even that the talent isn't there, the training isn't there, the investment in these people isn't there in the same way. Um, and the ones, as I said, who stay tend to be kind of shit because they are all right with producing shit. Whereas if you get out when you're like, I want to actually do something, I want to go out and do something that really either makes a difference or is actually like good quality reporting and that's also why you see people moving into you know these grassroots spaces like podcasting because you can do more there you can work on something that's longer form or you can join up with like a podcast company and even if they're not you know politically i don't know progressive or whatever they're like go ahead make this project like actually we'll give you a bunch of money to do that because it sounds really interesting see the trojan horse affair grassroots journalist links up with a very experienced investigator produces one of the most interesting groundbreaking pieces of podcastry, not just for what it reveals about, you know, Islamophobia and the uh, function of Islamophobia in British society, but also for its meta-commentary on how journalism works. They're constantly qu questioning themselves about what are we doing? What are our biases? How have we reported this? What are our sources? It's, if you want, again, another thing I'd add to my list of journalism media 
Trojan Horse Fair just for the way it interrogates journalism. And you can listen to Hamza talk about it at the next Bristol Cable event. Oh my God, Moya. Thank you for doing our advertising for us. Let's not make any bones about it. It's a real shit show, mainstream media at the moment. And it's almost getting worse, would we say? I mean, anyway, we know, as we've said, that the billionaires and the oligarchs who run so much, as you said, the lion's share of our mainstream media is problem enough. Then there you have things like GB News, who seem to be like literally in terms of the content seem to be degrading it to such an extent. GB News is the fastest growing news brand in the UK and its owner Paul Marshall is lining up bids for the Spectator and the Telegraph. I just want to say, like, mainstream media, it isn't getting better. Is it getting worse? I don't know if it's getting worse. Or is it But I also, I, I want to caution optimism in the sense of mainstream media isn't changing anytime soon, I don't think. I do think that GB News is disruptiveness might unfortunately push it even further into sort of its sensationalist model, the way that it has come through and blasted, um, you know, Fox News style. It's turning sitting politicians, sitting MPs into uh, new show hosts. It's managing to get around Ofcom rules even as it breaks them. It's showing how toothless Ofcom is. Uh, and it's also going to be lined up to be the uh, propaganda arm of the really socially, the national conservatives, they're calling themselves, National conservatives, when they're in opposition, who will probably take over the party, and that will be their base. That will be their media base. Um, so I, I don't think it's getting better, but what I think people on the ground can do, because I always know we're looking for solutions, is you guys are more media literate. You can still read that news. There's nothing wrong with reading like LBC or reading the Telegraph. I have to do it all the time, and it's useful. But you can analyze it and compare it to the other news sources and create your own picture and look at what's being missed. Honestly, one of the most instructive things you can do is read about five different news sources a day. But do we have a hope? I mean, like I'm coming to the end yeah, of, of, this, uh, in, of this conversation about campaign journalism, we've established why we need it, why the mainstream media is so terrible, why the role of campaign journalism, by contrast, is so important. And we've also talked about ways in which funding models ensure the financial sustainability to make sure that the future of campaign journalism is insured because we're not going to go under anytime soon, we hope. But I don't know, are, are you hopeful for the future? Yeah, of, campaign of course journalism? I'm hopeful. I've, I've had in a career where I don't think I've violated my principles in any major way. I've done things that I think are a bit embarrassing. I've written things that I probably wouldn't want people to read again because they're, you know, like 50 ways Donald Trump, uh, I don't know, messed up America um, in a weird aggregate fashion. But I've not actually done anything where I'm like, I've just sold my principles down the river. And the fact that I can do that in the year 20, from the years 2014 to 2023, that's something to be happy about. That, that shows that there's, yeah. there are these places out there. And even if we have to hop from one to the other, then we still have, you know, there's still people who are investing in journalism. There's still people who want to do really good quality journalism. The Manchester Mill, I would use an example of this, although they are venture capitalist funded now, which worries me a lot. Um, but they are doing really top quality stuff. And even if that model, I hope it doesn't, but even if that model in, you know, 10 years turns out to bite them in the ass, then... The fact is that people really want to pay for that kind of news. And they, um, you know, they do some amazing reporting around the B network. They do such good, like, investigative stuff, the cable. The appetite really is out there. Um, and I also want to add, this isn't new. Like, the, the, the landscape of media as we know it isn't really that new. 
we had the press barons, we've had this, you know, tightening of control before. It's it's not actually changed that much from I would say like post nineteen forties. But we have now the ability to just see it all laid out in front of us on the internet, etc. Um and yeah, I think people do want really good quality news and I think eventually people will start investing in that. And even that's only, I don't know, 25,000 people, that's enough to run a news organisation. Mm-hmm. Well, I am really glad you're hopeful. I too am cautiously optimistic, I would say. We are running this campaign. We have 2,500 members at the moment and we are really hoping to you know, at least get to 3,000, if not more. And I really do hope what the cable is doing is kind of taking a gamble on the fact that people do want to pay for quality investigative journalism. In Bristol, we are one of three major news outlets and the only one who is actually independent, actually editorially unconstrained by corporate owners. And, you know, counting reach in that. Of course. You can't count reach, yeah. No, no, no. no. I mean, no, they are the Bristol Post to... Yeah, as we all know, are owned by share, who have shareholders who are offshore, you know, who own offshore. One of my colleagues, like uh, Aaron Bastani, says that if you do not pay the majority of your tax in Britain, you should not be allowed to own British media. Well, there we go. <laughs> Amen, Aaron Bastani. I'm glad that you're hopeful. It gives me hope a little bit as well. I'm, I'm hopeful because also my colleague, another colleague, sorry to name drop my colleagues, Ash always says people like to back winners. I think we're winners. Um, and I think if you have that mindset, you're more likely to get other people on board as well. So it's not just about fighting. It's about the fact that we're winning. We're doing the best journalism out there. Like, how could you not want to back us? We're winning. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Put your hands together for Moya. <laughs> Join us for our next event, Trans Liberation and Diversity Journalism with Sean Fay, author of award-winning Sunday Times bestseller, The Transgender Issue. The talk will take place on the 6th of December at Strange Brew, with a podcast coming soon after. Find tickets at thebristolcable.org forward slash events with discounted tickets for members. Thanks for listening. <laughs>